All right, and we are live. I am here with uh, Jai Jagannath, David Madhava, and Kishore Chandra. And this is the second episode of Arise, the Honest Man's Podcast. And today we're going to be getting into a pretty sticky topic, I think, for a lot of people that is not very often spoken about. But first, we want to say what this is about. In essence, it's about real men arising to end the silence around us about the chains that bind us, to dispel the darkness of illusion with luminous spiritual technologies, to finally become the hero within us all. <laughs> it sounds so epic when you say that. <laughs> yeah, let's get into the honest discussion. What I like to say also, the price for honesty is fearlessness. So let's see how much currency we're packing today. <laughs> um, so the subject matter we want to get into today is guilt and shame. And this is kind of a follow-up to our last week's episode. So on last week's episode, just a quick recap, we were talking about sexual addiction. And amongst the different types of sexual addictions we brought up, we specifically zoomed in on PMO, which means porn, masturbation, orgasm, as particularly insidious and corrupting. Uh, and we gave our various reasons why we dealt with a, a sort of objection to that and why we didn't agree with the objection. Um, and then we kind of gave a definition, we gave our own personal experiences with it, which was a particularly vulnerable moment of the show, which I thought went very nice. Um, and then after that, we gave a definition of sexual, sexual addiction as avoidance. The real problem isn't lust, but the real problem is avoidance. There's something within us that we're not facing, we're not confronting, we're not overcoming. Uh, beautiful definition from this book, Sacred Sexuality by George Forrestine? Bauer, how do you say it? Jai Jagannath, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you this one more time, right? Okay, it goes <laughs> like this. Feuerstein, Feuerstein. Oh, that's what I right, okay. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, you got it. And then, and then we answered the question, am I a bad yogi if I like porn? Um, Jamuna and Kishore answered that question beautifully. And so just I wanted to bring this up that there were a lot of suggestions in the comments about solutions to the problem. We weren't so much zooming in on solutions to the problem in the conversation because we wanted to more paint a picture, a realistic picture of the inner landscape of the modern man today. Um, it's easy to just like shoot out some, you know, especially for bhaktas or practitioners of yoga or self-help or spirituality or life coaches. It's very easy to shoot out. You do this. This is the solution. But um, without actually getting maybe uh, a, a, a deeper insight to the inner landscape of what the modern man is going through, those solutions may or may not be fully mm, understandable or able to be integrated for those who are struggling with this thing. So in, my, in the spirit of still mapping out that inner landscape, we wanted to talk about why this remains a largely silent killer, especially in religious and spiritual communities. And we've pinpointed guilt and shame as the culprits who kind of disguise themselves in our hearts in very effective ways, or maybe they're not so disguised in, in, in some ways. And it keeps us silent about the issues, um, even to ourselves, to a large degree. So we kind of want to get into that subject matter 
and maybe get into some ways of how we might let go of guilt and shame. Y'all ever felt guilt and shame around sex and sexuality? <laughs> Do I ever feel guilt, feeling guilt? <laughs> okay, so let's start with let's start with a um, definition of guilt. We want to talk about guilt first and then shame after, because there's a distinction between the two. And we're taking inspiration again from this book from um, George Bauerstein. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you know, you know what happens. You know what happens when you enter into a big building. There's this room that you enter into first, and it's called a foyer. Ah, <laughs> oh, foyer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're gonna we're taking inspiration from how he um, addresses the subject matter in his opening statements of the book. So basically, guilt is defined as the painful awareness of doing something wrong. There was some transgression. There was some impropriety. You became aware of that and you feel some pain inside, basically. This is a general definition of guilt. He divides his guilt into two broad categories, situational guilt and what he calls his modal guilt. Situational guilt means there's a situation where there is an impropriety. You became aware of that, you feel guilty. That's natural, that's human, that's warranted. But then he speaks about something that he calls his modal guilt, which is basically You've done something, you've violated something that was like absolutely not supposed to be violated, like an inviolable law or like a sin. So even after repenting for it by whatever, by apologizing, maybe by self, what do you call this? Self-flagellation. <laughs> by self-flagellation. Even after you do some form of penance for that impropriety, it still it's still on you like the bad sense of let's say like king after you cleaned out the bottle you can clean out the bottle of king as much as you want that sense is there so when you do a, when you have model guilt or modal guilt like mode of nature modal guilt then it kind of it kind of sticks with you like this bad sense in your own psychology and you're carrying around that weight in your mind all the time which kind of arrests creative energy, it arrests confidence, it arrests self-esteem. It kind of brings you toward the direction of shame, which we'll get to in a minute. So this is the general definition of guilt, which I thought was a very good definition, a very good sort of categorization. Would you guys agree with this sort of definition? Is it making sense? Is there, if there's yeah. anyone wanting to flesh this out a little bit, please flesh it out. I guess I want to get to, now we can feel guilty about a lot of things. like. One thing I feel guilty about, genuinely, I'm not gonna even lie about this, is like passing air. Especially like if you like rip a hard one. Like I feel extremely guilty about that, like embarrassed. Like a very, and that's more like situational guilt. I don't carry it around as a modal guilt, but I do feel guilty about. So there are tons of things we probably feel guilty about that aren't very serious. But when it comes to sex and sexuality, that guilt, tends to be a lot more profound. And so I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about these definitions and particularly first memories that you have that you can think of where you experience situational and or modal guilt in relationship to sex and sexuality. That's my, that's the, this is the kickoff question. Also, I, I just wanna, I just wanna make a very small little addition there is that um, you know Feuerstein also Feuerstein also points out that um, 
you know, we that the worry or a feeling of guilt can can manifest even without a person having committed a wrongful a wrongful act like the mere intention to do something or the mere desire to do something which is out of alignment with your with your values and with your moral standards can basically incite a very very strongly afflicted state of being of you know constant modal guilt so that's also something it it may not even we may not even have to have done anything. Just wanting mm -hmm. to is sometimes enough. Thank you for um, bringing it up. Like, like if you have like a freaky thought, <laughs> you carry around the motor guilt for the rest of the day. What's wrong with me? <laughs> All right. So yeah, let's see it. Who wants to go first? I'll. I, when you were sharing before we started talking and you you were mentioning you'd be asking for these kind of stories, like one just immediately came to mind and it, it sat with me ever since I was like eight years old, you know, but it, it's, it's been deeply felt since then. Um, we were going to a family wedding and it was, um, you know, seeing people basically I'd never seen in my life, but their family. And so, okay. And I remember, my my cousin who was like probably 15 years older than me maybe and she had a big chest and she was in a, a bridesmaid's gown and i was eight years old and i just couldn't stop looking at the chest of my cousin and i felt so bad even though you know you know whatever and I, a few days after we got back from that wedding i went to i was just like sobbing and i went to see my dad and I, I confessed to him. I said, you know, he was like, Devin, what's wrong? Like, he, he thought something was really off. And I like, I blurted it out in like this choked, sobbing voice. And he just like, <laughs> he rolled his eyes. He had no idea what to say to me. And he just said, just, it's fine. And, and kind of igno ignored it. And that, that didn't really help, <laughs> that he didn't acknowledge it so much. And, and since then, it's always been like that. I, I feel that a lot. Anytime I, I have that attraction, it, it takes me back to that eight-year-old moment. And, wow. you know, cousin or not cousin, there's just like this deep sense of shame around it. Mm, wow. I can, I, I can. That sounds like a moto, a moto guilt sort of thing. Say again? <laughs> Is that mo that moto moto guilt is it? That's what yeah. I, I mean, I suppose so. It's it's yeah. yeah. It's it's lifelong. I can still feel the feeling today. <laughs> like that, that shame, that wrongness, that awkwardness. I still feel it. Right. I I can totally relate to that. I I remember. I think I was maybe twelve, thirteen, and uh, for for a very brief period of time, I was I was dating this 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 girl in my primary school you know because i mean what is what is like primary school dating even you know and i'll tell you i'll tell you what it is i'll tell you what it is we went ice skating and uh, i just i just remember very distinctly having exactly the same experience deva of just not because she was she was i mean she was 13 years old but she was like particularly well endowed for a 13 year old you know and uh i just i just also remember just being utterly transfixed by what was going on 
uh, on her chest. And I remember like in the car on the way back from our ice skating date, having this like still not being able to like divert my attention and then having this realization that like, I am actually not into this for any other reason than basically like drooling over this person, you know, <laughs> like th that, that, that was that. And I, I, I didn't, maybe I didn't articulate it quite like that, but you know, that was, that was pretty much the feeling. Um, mm. But then, then that, but I wouldn't say that was, that was all that guilty because also as time went along, now, I, I had a very, very peculiar situation uh, growing up in terms of moral instruction because my father, on the one hand, when it came to things like smoking, drinking, partying, you know, like being debaucherous in general in those ways, he was like super strict and super against it. Mm -hmm. But when it came to sex, he told me, you should have as much sex as you possibly can. Because one day, when you're old like me, then you're going to think about all those times that you could have and you didn't. <laughs> you know? like, I basically grew up with that as my, as my moral standard when it came to sexuality. Now, luckily, I still had somewhat of an intuitive understanding that that wasn't a good idea because you know my mother was very much not in that mood um but i could have easily i think used that just as an excuse to just like indulge as much as i possibly can but still you know sex and everything related to sexuality wasn't something that i felt any reason to feel too guilty about other than you know when we were perhaps on holiday with family members and you know, there may have been a cousin or two that was also particularly well endowed and I find myself kind of taking a peek, you know, then then it's like, okay, you know, you don't cross the bloodline standard, you know, that's just taking the bit of a Incest is not best. <laughs> it's not, it's not. <laughs> so, uh, so so i i only i only really started to experience like true guilt when when you know i i entered into a a spiritual philosophy that um has very highly developed moral standards but anyway we'll get to that yeah that's interesting i think i was gonna interject before you go kishore chandra so this is very interesting because now we have a couple of other devotees here who aren't on the straight narrow path, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so our 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 experience with guilt will be a little bit different, right? Mm. All right, so you you go. Yeah. Um <laughs> first experiences or memories. I would say it, it was it was so interesting to hear Karuna Avatar say like, yeah, I didn't really start experiencing guilt, like real guilt until like I got into a spiritual path that was like had morals or when I heard him say that, I was just like, wow. Like for, for me, because I'm not on the straight and narrow path and I'm like an openly gay person, guilt has simply just been, guilt and shame have simply just been like a part of my life since the earliest I can possibly remember. Mm. And it has definitely had like detrimental effects on my ability, you know, I think the definition of guilt at the beginning was saying something along the lines of like the ability to have confidence and 
uh, interpersonal relationships and things like that, it, had, it has definitely had detrimental effects on it because not only, you know, as a normal uh, boy, like, you know, 12 years old, eight years old, nine years old, like thoughts were coming into my head, like sexual thoughts were coming into my head, but they were towards, you know, the same sex. And so I, I personally was raised in a very traditional Hispanic household. And not only were we Christian, but we were Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and so it was a lot. It was a lot. And I think that when it comes to guilt and shame, you know, I remember I, I couldn't even speak to anyone about these kinds of feelings or thoughts that I was having. I couldn't speak to my family. I couldn't speak to anyone in the religious community. And on top of that, I couldn't even speak to my like friends in school because at that time it wasn't, you know, like how it is now where everything's kind of a free for all. And it's like, I mean, what I've heard from the kids, like my nephews and stuff is like, gender fluidity and all this stuff is like normal nowadays uh in school i'm saying like when you're 12 like that kind of thing so i couldn't speak to anyone really about it so it became a very like it became a very isolating experience mm -hmm. and i just wanted to share something that that i thought was very interesting and maybe some people can relate to this is that i think when it comes to morality and these feelings of guilt and shame because guilt guilt like the definition was saying it's like okay i feel bad because i've done something wrong or I've done something outside of the moral, you know, kind of the mor morals that I follow. But I feel like when guilt becomes a prominent uh, feature in one's life or you feel guilt a lot, you become very hyper aware or like hyper vigilant of like what's wrong and what's not wrong. And I feel like this can be a good thing in some ways, but I also feel like it can be kind of like a, a not so good thing because my experience with being like hyper aware or hyper vigilant is that when things when it, things inevitably inevitably like don't go my way or I, I step out of line or I do something you know wrong or whatever the the slide from guilt to shame is very fast like it just goes like because I've been hyper aware and hyper vigilant of like this is how it's supposed to be and this is how it's not supposed to be so I'm trying my best to be on the how it's supposed to be lane and if something goes awry, it's just like, you know, like this. And I feel like, you know, we'll, we'll get into this when we start talking about shame and these kinds of things. But I feel like these feelings of guilt and shame when, when not properly addressed, like David was saying, like his dad was just like not wanting to talk about it. Also, I remember, I think my parents gave me the sex talk or my dad gave me the sex talk like once. And it was very just like, like we're not talking about this. It was like a five minute thing of just like, here's a condom and this is how you use it. And that's, that's about, and that's about a five it. Minute tutorial. Yeah, like that. And uh, you know, I feel like when you don't talk about these things, one can, yeah, it, beca it becomes very detrimental to like one's own development in life. So I'm, I'm so happy that we have this space to, to talk about it. My experience is um, <clears throat> like y'all's in some ways, but also maybe a little unique. My, my first experience is with guilt surrounding sex and sexuality is that before i was a really good artist at one point like good i could draw i was like a really good drawer drawer is that how you say that from the time i was like five to about 11 or 12 i used to draw a lot and i was quite good at it and i remember you know hitting puberty and starting to become aware of different physiological changes in the body and a sort of attractions. I remember my first memories of drawing some pictures and we're just gonna leave it like that. <laughs> and there were pictures, there were actually, there were largely pictures of women at the time. 
And um, I remember drawing, they were like hypersexual and, you know, basically nudes. And I did the best. I was rigorous in trying to hide them. <laughs> but um, somehow or other, by providential arrangement, you know, <laughs> the moms know. So my mom, like, discovered the pictures. And um, I remember, like, like she's like, you know, Yeshua, that's my legal name. She was like, can we talk? And I was like, <laughs> you know, like you, it, and that was part of my first experience kind of like feeling guilt. Like I have done something wrong, even though there weren't any like specific rules that I was aware of or any like specific necessary like moral standard that I was aware of. But there was a sense that I had like crossed the line. And my mom was like super cool about it. She actually was like hyper vigilant, not to create a situation where I would feel shame around that at all and um she was largely encouraging and to be honest with you my mother i i, I feel like the earliest memories i have of her talking about sex was like seven and being like kind of very open about it obviously not being very graphic but kind of just being like very open about it to make sure that it wasn't something that we should feel embarrassed about or feel ashamed of so i even though it was like a situation where i felt guilt it was like limited to situational guilt because my mom was so cool about it and she was so like vigilant to make sure that it didn't translate into something that i was just carrying deeply in my heart um that was kind of my yeah my first experience with that of course she's a, a lady and there's some limitations of what she can tell you about what you're going through as a man and so that became a that became like a barrier between as I started getting a little bit older and started noticing other sorts of psychological shifts in my mind, it became very, it became basically impossible for me to talk to her about any of these things whatsoever. And so then enters, well, this is toward the end of middle school and then high school, I become a dancer. And <laughs> just as a sidebar, I wouldn't want to take birth again just so I can avoid middle school. <laughs> Like middle, like kids are demonic, dude. They like straight up demonic. If they were killed, no, I'm kidding. I'm not gonna go that far. Just the internet. You gotta, gotta be careful what you say. <laughs> but middle school was very heavy, and I, I became, I did the whole dancer thing. So people started like cracking all sorts of jokes about, you know, sexuality, like the faggot jokes, the gay jokes, this, that, another. And this was before I was coming to discover anything different about myself. That people were coming like hard, and so. That time it, you start to internalize like this is something you should feel bad about, but because I had the strong um, mother figure at the home who was like very vigilant that I wouldn't feel bad about anything surrounding sex and sexuality, I kind of never got to the point where you felt ashamed about really anything related to sex or sexuality. But it became very apparent that in the social context of what I was participating in, like there are certain things that are right, there are certain things that are wrong, and you should feel guilty or that you've committed a deep sin if you do these sorts of activities. And so that was kind of like probably my first experience with like a sort of modal guilt where you've not even done anything. I'm like, even to this day, I'm like, I'm a little pure. In terms of actual engagement, but that that so-called purity is probably related to guilt and shame. Anyway, that's not we'll get into that in a minute. So I wasn't doing anything, but there was still this sort of sense inside that 
you're like carrying around this thin. It's just like with you wherever you go. People can notice it as soon as they see it and they crack jokes about it because they're evil and they have no compassion. And you kind of, yeah, you kind of start to internalize that thing. And I think that was the first shift in high school where situational guilt, where the feelings around sex and sexuality, which were limited to situational guilt, became imbibed as modal guilt because of the culture that I was growing up in. Of course, by that time, there was like, um, anyway, maybe we can get into this in the next question, but basically I was going to say by that time, like this is like early 2000s, like 2000, 2001. There were like, there was like, obviously, I'm sure you'll be aware of this, like an LGBT agenda. And I don't necessarily mean that in a conspiratorial sense. Obviously, I mean that in a conspiratorial sense for anyone who knows me personally. But I just mean it also in that, like the visible sense that there was like an LGBT agenda. Like there were a lot more shows coming up where they were like featuring LGBT characters. They were featuring um, I, like, I remember there was this one show I didn't see at the time, but there was one show Queer as Folk, I think. There was like, it was clear that it was an agenda, like they were really pushing for more of acceptance of this sort of landscape of sex and sexuality, so that you never had to like spiral down into shame exactly, but there's still this sort of internalized feeling that this was like demonic. And, or if not demonic, it was wrong, it was a sin, you got, you know, this was something. So it was kind of like first experiences with, with that. So, so interest, anyway, interesting story, because I had a mother who was like super cool about it, but then a culture that was very different. Mm-hmm. And so how it escalated. All right, so that's guilt. Right, let's get into shame. Now, the, the way Feuerstein, thank you, I got it. The way Feuerstein <laughs> discusses shame, is the difference between so guilt is to feel the the painful feeling that comes from awareness of something that you've done wrong shame he says is distinct in that it's a painful feeling from being unworthy so in the one case there's like a transgression of it's a problem of doing a failure of doing i didn't i didn't do right but in the second case it's a failure of being i am unworthy because of you know xyz i really found that to be kind of um very nice distinction and makes it very clear some sort of emotional landscape going on internally um so yeah i kind of wanted to ask that question do you have any first memories with shame where you felt like you were unworthy unworthy to be loved um unworthy to be accepted unworthy to belong because of especially connected to sex and sexuality. <laughs> well, f- firstly, firstly, just a, also just a very brief addition is um, I just really liked how this was put is that guilt is essentially related to transgression where shame is related to inadequacy being fundamentally mm. lacking. So mm. I just, I just, I just like those those two words and um nice. i mean shame definite um definite manifestation of shame in in childhood years and and um and in teenage years of basically i was told as a kid and i'm you know i'll get into like i'll get into the sexual into the realm of sexuality but just very briefly as a kid i was told there was this mantra that was repeated to me that 
I just want you to reach your full potential. All you have to do is reach your full potential, right? What the hell is that supposed to mean to a child? That means you have to be perfect in everything that you do. And if you're not, then basically you're not good enough. Um, mm. And so I would, I would definitely say that like I had a constant, I, I think, but it was like, it was like an unarticulated uh, feeling of shame that settled deeply into my, into my inner being and just basically festered in, in, in just, and just constantly feeling like I wasn't good enough and that anything that I tried to do, I just wouldn't be able to do it as well as I should. Um, so I think that it, it, it initially definitely manifested in that regard. Um, and then, you know, it's like, as we discussed last week, PMO, porn, masturbation and orgasm is uh, these days basically like staple sustenance for young men growing up. And, um, you know, so when I, when I initially entered into the ashram, then, you know, I was, I, I kind of like, I went cold turkey on the porn, but masturbation wasn't so easy, you know, it, at, at least initially. Um, and there was kind of like a, there was, there were, there were moments where I would kind of, you know, very sneakily, do my thing, and then and then feel uh, really, really, really rotten about that. Um, and then, sort of like as I as I matured in in my spiritual life and came to you know more deeply understand our philosophy and our exact conceptions of how things are meant to be and not to be, and what we're meant to be desiring and not desiring. You know, then 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 shame. <laughs> it uh, it settles in, <laughs> it settles in deeply. Um, yeah, so I'll just I'll just open up with that, and I mean it can become more specific, but I, yeah. It seems like for you, and probably I imagine for a lot of us, um, men in the world, that shame became more pronounced after you became a devotee, and not before. Just from what I'm hearing, particularly when it comes to sex and sexuality. Which is very interesting. That's what we wanted to discuss after these um, anecdotes, so to speak. I was kind of a, a counter to that. I, I had a, an opposite experience. Not that I didn't struggle with my sexuality after meeting the devotees, but I was so relieved that there was a philosophical basis for the struggle. And mm -hmm. the, the struggle no longer had this existential element of like, is this who I am? Is this very like perverse, abusive, you know, manipulative thing that needs to extract from others what I, I want with disregard for them, to know that that's not who I am was for me a huge relief uh, mm. in entering into Krishna consciousness. Um, the the discussion around shame, just what, what came to my mind right away was that I used to make up sexual encounters just to avoid having to admit that I hadn't had one before because I my own awkwardness and feeling of, you know, whatever that kept me from engaging in that way for a very long time, way past kind of the normal threshold uh, in our time, middle school, high school, even into college, I would just make up encounters so that I wouldn't have to tell people that, no, I've not done that. And I, right. and, and face the shame of having <laughs> stayed 
clean and clear. I would make up having gotten down and dirty somewhere with someone that nobody else knew. Straight <laughs> and like, what did I tell this person? And it was a whole like, and so it, it just brought more anxiety, of course, trying to to maintain that. Um, but that's how weird it, it was that the need to feel like I validated myself in that way to, mm. you know, to keep myself looking some way in the eyes of peers. Yeah, you had to make sure, right, that the, um, the the person you got down and dirty with lives far away. You didn't have their number. Exactly. You didn't have their picture. <laughs> I would ask friends, like, you, you remember when I went to the beach that, like, you know, week or whatever? You know, and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. You know, wait, they like, cheer you on. <laughs> and I would make, I'd say something dismissive, like, you know, I don't want to – piss where I sleep or something like that in terms of like why I'm not spending time with women in my my immediate area and right. yeah it was it was scary to to have to face that wow yeah Yamuna was Yamuna was saying exactly the same thing last week he had exactly the same experience but it didn't go so well for him because he made something up and then the person that he told it to went to the girl <laughs> that he spoke about. Yeah, I never spoke about real girls. <laughs> yeah, that was smart. I remember only one time. Smart move I made. <laughs> I remember one time doing the same thing, David, but I made sure that I made up a story about someone that didn't live in the same state. I didn't have any pictures because we didn't really have proper phones and I was too broke to own a camera. Yeah. And I had like I had all the bases covered. You know, I knew exactly what I was gonna say. It was like practically scripted. And then I just repeated it to my friends and that way I could be seen in a certain way in the eye of my peers. So yeah. Jamuna just made a blunder there. It was a little blunder. <laughs> <laughs> I um I made up for the first year of high school, I made up a girlfriend. Horrible. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? And and you know what? Like it was a really bad lie and somehow people really believed me and I don't, I still don't understand to this day how the, cause it was like so bad. Like I was like, yeah, she's in Long Island in like New Rochelle or something. And New Rochelle apparently it's like upstate and not Long Island. I don't know. When you grow up in New York city, you don't really pay attention so much to upstate and Long Island. Um, but anyway, uh, in regards to shame, I feel like, yeah, just mentioning like the fact that I made up a girlfriend when I was like my entire first year of, of, of high school. And the reason I did that was because like, I mean, yeah, I was still brought up in a time when it wasn't seen like when being, being LGBT was not like a good thing. It was like a very bad thing. And on top of that, like I was raised in a religion where um, it was like super bad. It was like, you're a demon and you're burning in hell. And I remember, I remember like when my mother found out and it was also one of those things of like divine arrangement because, you know, I had every, I had all my funny. Oh my God. Stop. I had all my boxes checked. You know, I had my fake girlfriend. I had all of it, but actually I, I had like a high school, um, boyfriend. And even, while I had the fake girlfriend. And so I remember for Valentine's Day, I had like written him a letter or something like this, a, a very um, loving and explicit letter. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, that I made on word art. Some of you might remember word art. Microsoft. <laughs> 
And so I printed it on the home computer. And um, I guess I accidentally like printed two copies instead of one. And I left it and I left a copy there. And so my mother finds this copy of the letter to my boyfriend. It was so bad. And I just remember I get a call. I get a, I get a phone call. She's like, you know, Kevin, what are you doing? And uh, I'm picking I'm picking you up from school today. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so she picks me up from school and she's like super grave, super serious. And she she shows me, she shows me the letter. But it was really bad, you know, it was really bad because she was super like personally hurt by mm -hmm. it because like she was just like, this is just flat out wrong. Like this is just flat out really bad. And then so my experience was that like, obviously there was a lot of shame around it because like from a young age when I was having like sexual attraction towards like people of the same sex in my congregation, which was like, this is terrible, this is so bad. <laughs> And like, just, just to paint right. a picture for all of you, like, you know, for those of you that might not know the Jehovah's Witnesses, like I had to like dress up in a suit as a child and like go from door to door and like knock on people's door and be like, this is, you know, this is like the message of God. And like, I'm a perfect little saint. And like, I had to get up in front of the congregation and speak about God and stuff like this. So even like the idea that like, this was popping into my head was just like so bad. So anyway, um, so then when my mother found out, it was very much like you're a demon and like excommunicated from, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses and like whatever. But my approach to shame was very bad because it was like, I got to this point where I felt so much shame around just being, just being who I am, you know, having that like material condition on me that I, I was just like, you know what, fine. If I'm bad, then let me be bad. And I went for it to put, you know, <laughs> you know, I went for it. And I was just like, if I'm bad and if all of you are telling me that I'm like a demon, I'm going to go burn in hell and let me do all the things that I'm supposedly not supposed to do. And maybe we can get into this conversation later because I also, I mean, I went very deeply into like the LGBT whatever world, but I got to a certain point where I was just like, this is terrible. Like, this is awful. You know, like this extreme jump into one direction is, is very awful. And then my experience coming back to spiritual life, because I actually met the devotees when I was 21 years old, but I didn't start to take devotional life seriously until I was 26 for this specific reason, because I didn't feel like I could talk about this. I didn't feel like I could be open with devotees about this. And it really was like the mercy of meeting devotees at the Bhakti Center, where it was like a very different understanding and approach to it that kind of helped me be very okay with being open about these kinds of things and, and working around the shame around it. And I feel like that's been very important because I found that, you know, there are certain places like Bhakti Center and there are certain devotees where it's just like, you can be very open about this kind of stuff and no one's gonna shame you around it. But my experience has been that there are other places and other, um, you know, parts of our organization that like, it's definitely not okay to share these kinds of things. And I've had a lot of people reach out to me and I'm sure Jaya has had many people reach out to him as well that are like in fear, in shame, not feeling safe to talk about it, you know, faking a relationship <laughs> with a woman. And I feel like the, the highest point of that, like the most sad detrimental point of that is, you know, when people actually go through, I'm speaking about men specifically, where they go through like actually marrying a woman, you know, and they're, they're gay, like they're very gay and they marry, they marry a woman. And it's like, so, it's so bad, you know, it's so bad for both parties. And I've had people reach out to me with their stories and you know, I always send them to Jaya. Um, but anyway, I think, yeah, I, 
I think it's such an interesting thing because at least from my perspective, I'll end on this. It's like, I have not stayed as pure as Jaya, <laughs> um, <laughs> but my experience has been very similar in that like I've, I've gone into that kind of darkness and just seen how dark it can get, you know? And like the answers are, I feel like there's so much emphasis put on like identifying with our sexual propensities, whether that be a straight propensity or whether that be an LGBT propensity. It's like, this is now who I am and this governs my like every movement. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just so, I feel like that actually brings upon more shame when you try to have a, you know, life around principles and dignity. So it's kind of like this vicious cycle. Yeah, we've got this comment that Jashal is saying, like he's saying young people are bragging and that's basically what it is. Like your sense of value as a person is linked to your promiscuity or your sexual prowess in whatever arena. Uh -huh. And or in, in your experience with the Jehovah is that your, your fidelity to a certain version of sexuality then is a demonstration of your purity or whatever, your fidelity to the community. And if you aberrate from that then you're no longer valuable at all to the community that's the the end all be all make or break of the whole exchange right and then after that you just embrace the image of yourself that they imposed upon you <laughs> which is some very it's a very it's an interest, like a peculiarity of human nature that if someone keeps like imposing a certain image of you onto you then you kind of like you know what yes and then you kind of just embrace it and i feel like sidebar like i think that happens a lot in our political landscape today also as an example of how two sides they have a certain vision of each other that they insist upon that the other person is in fact like this without mm -hmm. knowing them and at a certain point when someone continues to insist upon that you just say you know what i'm just going to embrace that you know since they're thinking i'm doing this then i'm going to actually do that i'm going to actually quote unquote be that so it's, um, anyway, yeah, just, you brought up a lot of wonderful, subtle points there. Um, I Like I said, because I grew up in a home where my mom was like kind of vigilant that we wouldn't feel embarrassed around sex and sexuality. And I think she may have, there might have been a sense of like overcompensating because there wasn't a man in the house. And she knew that we would be going through a lot of things that we probably wouldn't be able to confide in her about. And so she maybe was overcompensating to make sure that we didn't feel ashamed. So there wasn't really any deliberate, I, I can't remember a conscious feeling of shame where I felt like there was something inadequate about me or like there was something unworthy about me as a being. But modal guilt and shame are kind of closely linked. And I think obviously there's shame in the sense that you want to dissimulate, like, that aspect of yourself from the world, particularly when it comes to like LGBT stuff. You wanna just dissimulate and you know make sure that no one finds out about that because of this, that's, that's clearly shame there. There's some shame, but like on a personal level, like subjectively, I was like, I'm definitely worthy and someone would be fortunate to be with me. You know, I had that, cause I was a dancer. Like I had this sort of dancer's ego also. And dancers are, anyway, generally speaking, in my lived experience as a dancer, they're puffed up. They have a, you know, they have a certain air to them because, you know, especially classical dancers, because they have a certain, there's a certain elegance about how they carry themselves. And they're basically pride. So I had that pride aspect. And I also, to be honest with you, I think a lot of the pride aspect that was linked to my ability to do other things 
also came from shame in this sense of having to dissimulate. So you have to overcompensate in other areas to show that you are adequate enough. So I never thought about it deeply, but just as I'm thinking out loud right now, I can definitely see that being a, a factor. So I was Not only was I a dancer, I was also an athlete. I was on the track team, I was on the volleyball team. Um, I did a lot of sports when I was in high school because, and again, because I, there's probably a sense of overcompensation, needing to show yourself as more because of that, the stimulation on the other hand. Um, but I never felt like on a subjective level that I was less than in any way. But the need, the feeling that you were kind of obliged to stimulate this aspect was like, okay, that's shame there. And I probably, just to Dave Marvel's point, I'm going to transition to this. There, it, it took philosophy in order to help me navigate what was happening with me existentially. And like David Madhava, I also think I felt a little relief from that because as you just mentioned, David, quoting whoever you were mentioning, there was this, there's whole, there's this pressure to fuse your identity with your sexuality and make everything about that. And that's just like a lot, it puts a lot of stress on the psyche when you have to do that. And so I think I also experienced relief having inter-Christian consciousness to realize like, oh, I'm not the body. I'm not the psyche, I'm not this physical. So there, there, I guess it kind of gives you enough distance to kind of like rewrite your self-image for yourself instead of having to embrace what you kind of were pigeonholed into. Um, but otherwise, yeah, subjectively, I can't remember feeling intense shame aside from the dissimulation part until after becoming a devotee. And I, that's why I want to I want to switch gears now and talking about guilt and shame in the context of devotional service, and or just religious or spirituality in general. Spirituality tends to be sex negative, basically, um, and a lot of it. Like when I, we were reading Forrest Nine's book, there I got it it's in my head now. When we were reading his book, he, he was speaking a lot about inheriting like Middle Eastern traditional understandings around sex. But I was thinking, forget Middle Eastern, even Vedanta aspect is pretty sex negative. You know, Asana Pikleshada Atade Harishab Dev saying the body is Kleshada. It is a giver of misery. And sacrifice specifically is pinpointed as the chain <coughs> that binds souls to the world of suffering. Like in for example, Pungsa Sriya There's so many verses I can quote off the top of my head. So there's a pretty strong sex negative emphasis around sex and sexuality so that when you enter into the Christian consciousness community, then your guilt and shame around those things become magnified like anything. So I wanted to hear about experiences with that. And take I have a lot of I have a lot of ideas around this that I think we like I like to get into a little bit just because of Christian conscious philosophy. Like how do we reconcile our Vedanta emphasis and Vedanta tends to be pretty self-abnegating with a bhakti emphasis which tends to be a little bit more integrating where it's like okay the body isn't all negative if you use it for devotional service it's great it's not really a problem so I'm going to get into that conversation but first I want to hear about this sort of magnification of guilt and shame in the context of entering devotional service of course I'm sorry about you, Kishore. You've been dealing with this your whole life, <laughs> but, 
for some of us, we experienced the magnification only after joining Christian consciousness. So I want to hear about like, yeah, how do you, what was your experience of that? And how have you navigated that over the years? <laughs> I'm not going to begin this time. <laughs> it was like, uh, I, ran out of, I, ran, I ran out of fearless currency. I'm sorry, I, I'm going to just be quiet now. I've been, I'm on my second marriage. And the first marriage that ended, um, that, that was a lot of the awkwardness that I put into the relationship, a lot of the bad that I brought was around my trying to reconcile the reality of a, a relationship with a person and the standard that the community kind of hides itself behind. The, and I, I feel this is my own kind of reflection. The, there's such a deep need for the community to feel pure. And the, the actual demonstration of that purity, which our real measurement is love for God, love for Krishna, is not so evident every day, everywhere, all the time. And so then these external standards become, they're, they're kind of easier benchmarks to mm. make ourselves feel good. That yes, I'm very pure and I'm, I'm very close to attaining perfection, et cetera. And so these standards are emphasized, uh, overemphasized. And in trying myself to feel that kind of confidence in my relationship, that I'm a good devotee being a good devotee husband for my good devotee wife, I actually spoiled things by not just having a natural exchange of affection um, more, yeah, in, in a wholesome way. And, and it, it created a lot of, all, all the feelings of guilt and shame were that are already present and especially present for women. I mean, we're, we're guys, we have a, a different way of dealing with our emotions, but when a woman is feeling an emotion, that's her reality. Guys have an easier time of separating emotion from, from their reality using rationale. The strength of a woman is also the weakness in that an emotion just becomes all consuming in many cases, especially when it's a negative one. And so they're already dealing with this whole like awful conception of themselves based on what the modern world gives them. And then on top of that, our communities are, are forcing like pigeonholing an idea of sexuality that is nearly unattainable, especially for someone coming out of the Western experience. And and in trying to navigate that, I really just spoiled the whole, you know, show, um, at least in the first two years. And, the, and then trying to walk out of it, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't able to, so to speak. And so the, the relationship ended. And so that was a point of facing that and admitting that was itself a kind of guilt and shame and, <laughs> and, and work to have to do that, admitting that I'd failed on both sides and, and not really met either. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Sure. I really, really. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Eva, um, I just, I, I feel, I feel you very deeply. I feel you very deeply there, my friend. And I, I, I'm very grateful to you for really being able to say it as it is um, in, in many ways. And like, yeah, I mean, two of you, Jai and Deva, both of you, both of you are aware, but you know, I'm, I'm currently uh, finding myself going through an extended uh, ongoing 
process of very deep uh, deliberation as to um, you know how how I'm supposed to actually reconcile my my sexuality with um, the external standards, the very very rigid, unlike compromising standards um, that are essentially being expected of me that I am completely convinced <laughs> I cannot live up to, you know, at least <laughs> for like, for like the, for, for at least for as long as my youth uh, goes. Um, and that is, that is really, uh, that is really a hell of a thing. And I recently, I recently wrote an article, um, which I have not yet released because basically I'm kind of like, I'm so, uh, I'm so cautious about, because this, this is, this is the thing. Like I have a certain honest experience, right? Now that honest experience, if I were to express it publicly would get me in a lot of trouble. And I have been told that in so many words, in exactly those words, because mm. I wrote an article about the way that I really feel about this whole debacle. And I consulted with uh, one of my seniors, a very, very advanced and very experienced devotee who has, you know, especially dealt with this entire realm of, of subject matter very extensively. And he literally said to me, if you say that publicly, you will get your head chopped off, you know, you wow. will, you will literally, you will literally get yourself get, you, you'll get yourself kicked out of ISKCON. That's what he said to me. So now it's like, it's kind of like this, this, this deliberation of like, you know, like, should I authentically express what I really think and what I really feel and what really, what I really feel needs to happen or you know, do I just kind of like, do I just kind of like keep myself uh, at bay and to try to not publicly challenge the status quo or the way that things have been established, um, despite looking around me and seeing so much inauthenticity and so much shame mm. and so much mm. like struggle, you know, so 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 it's 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 really really a very very conflicted um a very conflicted thing because just to just to kind of end off for now is that like unlike you know unlike jai and deva you know you guys basically came into this uh, into this divine spiritual philosophy and you were so relieved by by finding out that essentially you're something much deeper than this and that you don't have to identify with these desires of the body. But I had a great time being the body before I came to Krishna consciousness. You know, I was like, I was having a hell of a great time. And like, honestly, my, 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 my sensual indulgences were, were really like the only experiences in life that was giving me, you know, any sense of feeling like liberated and free and truly like life has any 
sort of meaning. Obviously, it wasn't enough because here I am, Karuna Avatar Das, but, um, you know, <laughs> still, it was, <laughs> it was still, it was still a thing, you know, so, so it's like, now, now I'm having to, uh, yeah, reconcile all of these things. Anyway. Yeah. I, I, okay, Krisha, you want to go? Okay, you can go. Mm. Should I go? Okay. Yeah, you can go. I can go last time. Okay, okay. Um, no, I was just gonna say that, I mean, I was just gonna share and I, I really like what, thank you, David Madhavaprabhu for just being so honest about what needs to happen. And Karuna Avatar, I feel, I feel you. Um, I feel you for sure. Cause I was also having a great time. Well, I think, I think, you know, honestly, I really connect a lot with the verses. There's a lot of verses in Bhagavatam that speak about suffering and that speaking, speak about like, you know, kind of like enduring the suffering that we are supposed to have in our life, you know, according to our material bodies, according to our past uh, karma and et cetera. And that, that endurance will simply like just make us better. It will, it will give us that, that right to, you know, have access to Krishna. And I really always connect with those kinds of verses in the Bhagavatam because for me, at least it was always like, I would have a lot of fun and a lot of pleasure and a lot of all that stuff until it got real bad, real fast. And I always joke with Jaya about this because at least like in the, I, I mean, I don't know how, I think, okay, I think that women probably experience this a lot where like things go really bad, real fast. So it's like a guy seems nice and all of a sudden they slip the roofie in your drink, you know, or like everything, everything seems Sorry, like I'm going- Sorry, I'm to laugh about that. I'm, I did. <laughs> I'm laughing about it in the context of what Kishore is about to say. Because he knows. He, yeah, he knows what I'm about to say. You know, so I feel like maybe women experience this, that like that, that, that sense of like where male energy can get really predatory mm -hmm. and really like evil and destructive if it goes uncontrolled. And so in the LGBT world, specifically the gay male world, it's like that energy is still present and it's very present. And so, and, and it's obviously like, twofold because now there's you know everyone's a man and so i remember i remember just like i remember having direct experiences i remember having direct experiences where like things seem fun and i always joke with jaya about this where it's just like i don't know at what point but like you know i i really don't want to get to that point where it's just like i'm having a good time on the dance floor and then all of a sudden i end up like in a sex dungeon like chained like you know being whipped to and it's like but the thing is that like the, the saddest and that hasn't happened to me that hasn't happened to me and i really am afraid that it doesn't happen to me but i know people that that has happened to you know i know people that that has exactly. happened to you and Exactly. And the sickest, and this, okay, I don't want to use the word sick because it might come off as judgmental, but the scariest thing is when I start to really like, by I, I mean like the general I, when I start to really think like that's what I want or that's what I need or that's what, that's what makes me feel alive and free. You know, I've gotten to that point in uh, of identifying with my sexual, um, you know, my, my sexuality that I'm like, oh, only this reaching this uh, limit of that is going to make me feel free or alive, you know? Cause that's why all these people who are doing these things, that's why they're doing it, you know? Like I'm talking about like extreme sexual acts, right? Like, I don't know, dungeons, dominatrixes, whatever. Like people are doing it because they need to feel free. They need to feel alive again. They need to feel this sense of like, whatever. 
And I had the, you know, the blessing and the mercy to like experience some darkness in my life to be like, oh, this sensual pleasure stuff is like, I, I don't want to end up in that dungeon. You know, like I really truly don't want to end up in that dungeon. Like Jaya, Jaya was my roommate uh, in the ashram for, for many years, for those of you that don't know that. And I always used to joke with him like, Jaya, I really don't want you to get a call one day and be like, oh, so we found someone in, uh, uh in the hudson and uh yeah it seems very <laughs> seems like they had like chains on them and collars and all sorts of stuff i really don't want to go down that route and so for me i also experienced um to get back onto the conversation of like joining the ashram and joining a spiritual path very seriously i feel like it was very much a blessing for me to go through all of that dark stuff and to go through all of like the shame and guilt kind of first not saying that i didn't experience it also when joining, um, you know, when joining the ashram and joining, uh, but it made me very hyper aware of like what I was joining and very like blatantly honest to be, you know, to be frank. Like I remember in like the first kind of groups that I started coming to, I was, I remember like writing an email to um, a Prabhu just being like, this is my situation and I need to make sure that this is a safe space because if it's not, then I don't want to come, you know? And so I had a lot of, mercy in that sense that like i had those life experiences first that led me to just be like this is the situation this is what's happening and mm -hmm. i had a lot of um you know grace from those prabhus that were just like yeah of course you're allowed to come of course you should be here of course this of course that and i think it also brought me to a point of honesty where i when i was like deciding to take spiritual life more seriously and looking for you know a guru and this kind of thing I was very much encouraged to be very honest with my guru, you know, just like be extremely honest, just tell him what's going on, tell him everything. And that has actually deepened my relationship with my guru and having like instructions specifically around these kinds of things, which I feel like most people, I mean, at least it's my understanding that most people don't do that. Most people no. aren't like extremely honest with their guru, whether it be, you know, gay or not gay, just about like, hey, this is where I'm at in regards to like the principles and in regards to following everything like to the T, like this is where I'm at, like what do I do, you know? Because essentially that's what I told my guru, except, you know, from a different perspective in the sense of, of being gay, like this is where I'm at. It's Because my experience was that I thought that I was pure before moving into the ashram. Like I remember like the two years before I moved into the ashram, I was like, I just want to be a brahmachari and I just want to live in the ashram and I just want to be pure. I want, I want to forget about all this like crazy gay, you know, sex dungeon world. I just want, and then when I finally moved into the ashram, it was like all the desires just like, shoom, like a wave just came onto me. And I was like, oh, what did I do, you know? And so I remember it became very clear to me that there needed to be some sort of middle ground. Like it, for me specifically, you know, for me in my situation, there needed to be some sort of middle ground between like following all the principles super strictly and just like super rigid. Because on top of that, you know, I'll end here from the, from the perspective of like, you know, just being a person in a gay body. It's like, I also had to deal with like on a philosophical level of just like, wait a minute, does this mean like, does the principles mean like, you know, um, the, the principles mean that like, because it's saying that we should only have sex for procreation. Like I just like could never have sex ever again. Like, am I just supposed to be a eunuch for the rest of my life? And I always joked around with this with Jaya because I was just like, I think that, you know, for me, it was such a great fear of like 
being accepted, you know, being accepted in the community, being accepted. And I always, fe- I always felt, thankfully, I always felt like I was in the community that I was in. But I always thought, like, if I had a partner, you know, like if I had, and I like walked into the temple with that partner, like, would that be okay? And I even like had to have sit down conversations because it was, it was just paining my mind. Like, is this okay? Like if one day I have a partner and this, like, I remember, like, I remember one time you asked one devotee and they were like, yeah, it would be okay. And then you asked me and another devotee and we were like, nah, homie, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. Yeah. And I think like, it's just like when, when things become very, and I guess I'm going to try to like go away from like the, the, the gay angle, but just like when we stand in our honesty, you know, when we stand in our honesty of just like, yeah, this is, this is my situation with this person, you know, whether they be a man or a woman or whatever. And it is what it is, you know, like this is where I'm at right now. And is that okay? As opposed to hiding behind, I like the word language that was being used, hiding behind like the principles or giving this facade that like, we're just like the perfect couple and the perfect devotee couple and the perfect devotee person. And I feel like that's for me has been such a point of like trying to maneuver how to do that. So I'm really interested to know Karuna Avatar, maybe later what it is, this thing that you've written, because I've always like tried to like understand how to maneuver that space of like standing in my authenticity and honesty and just being like, yeah, this is where I'm at right now, you know? <laughs> or, and, and then like seeing how people see me or how people want to see me or like how I'm supposed to be. And like those two things seem sometimes irreconcilable. Is that a word? Irrecon- irre- yeah. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I um I personally on this subject matter and I need to find my charger because my computer is about to die. But um I experienced definitely a magnification of guilt and shame in the context of like the regular principles being very much emphasized in this context. Um I remember my very first class before I was even embracing devotion at a Sunday feast. And you know how when you're coming to the first time Sunday speech, you're here in a class and you don't know, you don't know shit about shit. And so basically the only thing that sticks out to you in the class are keywords. So in the class, the speaker, I remember who it was. I'm not going to say who it was, but I specifically remember this is almost 20 years ago, but I'll never forget this. In the class, he says, this is condemned. And these people, they are condemned. And that one, he is condemned. And I remember just experiencing the classes like, wow, these people condemn everyone just like the Christian. I'm out. I'm not coming back to this. Luckily, three days later, I found my first book, SSR, and I became a devotee right after reading that. So when, once I entered into the ashram, I really realized there was like a strong emphasis on the four regular principles as the bar of purity. And as David Madhava was saying, instead of the bar of purity being, where is your love for Krishna? It really was centered around the four regular principles. And so I observed over the years that that emphasis also augments shame because a lot of people take those vows and then they can't follow them for literally obvious reasons. The obvious reason being, homie, you're still in ignorance and you haven't even done a Narsanavritti yet. Of course, you're going to be popping off a little bit every now and again. Anyway, sorry to be using such language. But... And so, and then having not been able to stick to the, the standard, you kind of just resign yourself to being, you know, less than you feel ashamed about it, basically. And I remember, you know, so for me, because I have a philosophical mind, I think a lot about, and I'm really into the philosophy of Christian consciousness. I was observing that. I was observing the magnification of guilt and shame within my own self. 
um, because of that sort of standard. But of course I was following the standard. So I was like, I'm okay. Until I got out of ashram. Then I was like, oh, I'm not okay. All right, I need to work. I need to figure this out. I need to philosophize. Because, you know, as you said, rightfully, I think, Deva, that men tend to deal with their emotions a little, we kind of abstract ourselves from the situation, which can make us a little bit stoic and sore. But I, I, I can see that um, this emphasis has really translated in an unhealthy way in the mind. I'm going to give a um, anecdote. Can I give an anecdote? This anecdote is funny. It's about initiation of one of my God brothers. Give me two seconds. Chan Hari Krishna, my computer's about to die, and I really want to get through this anecdote before my computer dies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we have a nice comment from Jeshal. He's saying, is the antidote to the pain of shame some level of acceptance? And I would say, based on our conversation, that that feel how most of us have been able, oh my, yeah, pinning it, been able to move above and beyond and out of whatever that that dungeon of guilt was, is, yeah, here, here I am. And a problem shared is a problem solved in so many ways and chant and be honest and suddenly, like, it's not such a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I have more on, I have something on that too, a little bit. Let's see, here we go. Anyway, here's the anecdote. Mm. So it's an initiation of one of my god brothers. Who's at Bhakti Center. So he's reciting the four regular principles. And you know how the principles are, we're like, they're like scripted. So they're given to us and we kind of just repeat the script. So homie deviated from the script. So at one point when he got to, he's like, okay, no meat eating, no gambling. And then he said, no alcohol. So we were like, oh, <laughs> that's not exactly the principle. A little bit of a Freudian slip there. And then he like, he like shook it off and was like, I, I mean, no, no intoxication. So, you know, we kind of, the audience was kind of giggling a little bit because that happens to all of us. We get nervous at initiation. But then after that homeboy said, and no sex. And all of no. we were like, no. <laughs> You know, like we were cutting so many jokes about that in the back. We were like, at least when you say no illicit sex, you got a lot of wiggle room. Because what is that illicit? You know, you get a little bit of wiggle room there. But you just said no sex. And we were like, no, stop the initiation. Stop. Change it up. That cannot be your vow. Um, so, but it, anyway, for me, seeing that, I'm joking about it now, just in jest. Um, but it did, it kind of occurred to me that there's a little bit, that it was in a sense a Freudian slip for how the philosophy is translated to us. And the only thing I can make out of it over the years was that, you know, our philosophy is Bhakti Vedanta. So there's like, and I hate to make this division, but there's like the Bhakti part and there's like the Vedanta part. And the emphasis are a little bit different. Vedanta, as you know, Vedanta really refers to the Upanishads. And there is a strong emphasis on renunciation, on the path of Gammarg, a strong emphasis on self-abnegation. Um, in fact, when you, when you go to the 11th canto of the Bhagavad Purana, chapter 20, the beginning part where Krishna's talking about the qualification for each of the paths, he specifically mentions the adhikara or qualification for the Gammarg is this sort of self-abnegation and total renunciation of the material world. That's kind of like the Vedanta part, because in Bhakti, there is a natural renunciation that comes from tasting the beauty of Krishna. But that's supposed to be renunciation that comes from tasting the beauty of Krishna, not as renunciation so you can taste the beauty of Krishna. 
And so the Vedanta part, since it's really hammered on in our communities, you know, like literally, even when you're hearing Krishna Leela, like people will bring in a strong Vedanta angle because we feel like guilty that we're only talking about Krishna's story. And there has to be some other angle in there that encourages us to be renounced from material things. Which is, I get that. Like, I'm not, I'm not even criticizing that. I understand that. Because we are entangled in Maya. We should talk about Maya. By talking about Maya, we can get out of Maya. There's a verse like that in the seventh chapter of the second canto. So I get that. But on the other side, you have the qualification for bhakti <clears throat> mentioned by Krishna in the Uddhava. Is that it's primarily faith in the topics of Krishna. That's the main adhikar. And then he says, if you have that qualification, you're not too attached and you're not too detached from matter. Because if you're too attached, obviously you're not going to do bhakti. But if you're too detached, then you're not going to engage with the energies around you in a healthy way for your service to and devotion to Krishna. So the devotee should not be too detached also. And I, I feel like what happens, like this on, and this is me thinking out loud and philosophizing about it a little bit. I feel like what happens is because we have such a strong emphasis on self-abnegation that it paradoxically makes us preoccupied with the body and sex and sexuality. Um, and I think George Forrestine also brings this up in his book that we do become paradoxically preoccupied with the body because of that. It's you know, just like when we were brahmacharis, when we joined the brahmacharya ashram, we were like, um, ew, women. Which means that you were thinking about them all the time. Like that's just how that, that aversion is the flip side of attachment. So in our preoccupation with Vedanta, the bhakti part kind of gets eclipsed and we paradoxically become preoccupied with the body. And as such, it really tends to indicate that we don't have a, a healthy relationship with our bodies, with our sex and sexuality. Therefore, we're preoccupied with it because if we had a healthy relationship with it, it wouldn't really come up in the psyche so much. And then you would have all that extra room to just focus on how you're gonna develop your bhakti. But all that room that could be used for that gets hijacked by this preoccupation with sex and sexuality because we don't have a healthy relationship with it. So my question to you, I've kind of slid into another point, is that how do, how do we, navigate this paradox. On the one hand, um, the self-abnegation emphasis of Vedanta moving us back, causing us to be preoccupied with the body and therefore betraying really an unhealthy relationship with the body and with sexuality. Like what would be, if you had to offer a suggestion to the community, what would be your suggestion for how to deal with this paradox? Uh, I can. My question clear. Is a is is a clear question. Okay, cool. For sure, it's a great point. Um, by Shishaka Prabhu says, where attention goes, energy flows, and it doesn't matter if that attention is positive or negative. And right. so, all this negative attention on the body just brings us into the bodily consciousness. This overcompensation. Sometimes I see it as little dog syndrome. You know, the little dogs that bark so much because mm. they're tiny, and so they're, they're, they're <laughs> so focused on his renunciation or the girl or whatever of the, the, their physical circumstance, they give, they have so little attention for Krishna, actually. Um, my advice, what, what I've done personally, um, the last three or four years, seeing that I'm, I'm a little established in my Krishna consciousness, I have some understanding philosophically, I have some experience, I have some good and bads. 
I've now kind of revisited what does my body need? And body means not only physical, but also me mental and emotional. What does my physical, mental and emotional body need to be kind of pacified to a degree where with the rest of my energy and capacity, I'm able to think about Krishna and, and do some service for the devotees. And taking that reassessment after being around a few years and, and dealing with my own misconceptions and other people's misconceptions and the unhealthy nature of the society in general, I've really come into a settled place personally where I know this is what I need and I don't care if you don't know that. I don't need you to know that. I know, and the people who really matter in my life, they can also see it and they're appreciating it. And from that, that experience and that affirmation from those people that I know I can trust, not somebody on Dundabots or somebody on Facebook or whatever, some guy on Sunday and gives the feast talk. I know that I don't necessarily have to trust that person. I can respect them, but I don't have to give a sense of myself to that person and their assessment of what my Krishna consciousness is supposed to be. And so in, in making that honest reassessment for myself, I found a lot of peace and fulfillment. Mm. Wow, mm. nice. Really mm. powerful. So Any other suggestions? If you had to give a suggestion to the community in navigating this paradox and coming out well, of it successfully. Well, yeah, I, I've been I've been I've been thinking about this as everyone was speaking and I and I think that a really, really big factor that plays into this entire equation is the need for validation, um, the need to feel uh, accepted and that you belong. And so, you know, we find ourselves in, a, in, a, in an institution that has certain very uh, rigid requirements for what a virtuous life uh, is supposed to look like. And I think that especially in, a, in, a, in an immature phase of one's uh, development, um, having not come to understand that perhaps, you know, imbibing the ideal standard of life is a point that you can work towards and something that you know, you, you can ultimately achieve, achieve in time as you mature. I feel like mm -hmm. everyone in their, in their early phases is expecting themselves to become a saint from the get-go. But we need, to, we need to become true human beings before we can become saints, I feel. And we, we, we need to actually understand exactly as Deva Madhava said, you know, on an individual level, what is it that our body minds require in order to be sufficiently nourished and satisfied and well situated so that we are able to direct our consciousness towards the ultimate goal of Prema Bhakti? Um, and and because now now also just taking it a little bit further, it's 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 kind of like it's kind of like there is a certain there is a certain public standard of what things are supposed to be like for every person and Srila Prabhupada has established that very very strongly now and also even in terms of our of our scriptures there is no question of because because also that is a western tendency as Hari Vilas likes to point out that 
we we in the West have a tendency that, you know, if something doesn't suit our desires, then we want to change the standard. Now, you, 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 can't, you can't change ultimate truth. Truth is truth and you can't change it. Like, we can't expect to challenge that, you know, it, it, you, that anything below sex only for procreation, you know, can actually be defined as licit sex. We, we can't expect that. Um, so, so basically what it essentially comes down to is that every person has to come to the point of accepting that in their own personal private life, they have to very consciously discern what it is they need as Deva Madhava has done, um, you know, in order to be able to reach the ultimate standard and to not expect to be validated by everyone around you in the entire society. Because ultimately, the entire society is not relevant to us. What is relevant to us <laughs> is our community. Right, you know? yes. Right. The people that the people that surround us, those who are closest to us, they those that actually play an active role in our lives. And that is exactly what David Madhava has also said, that you know, when those people can clearly see that you're at a certain point and that you require a certain thing in order to progress, you know, maybe you need to take a step back in order to take a few steps forward, then that's great. That's all you need, you know. Nice. Thank you. Kishore, you got any message for the community? Yeah, if you had yeah, yeah just, to, just to kind of drive the point home, because I feel like David Madhava Prabhu said it so nicely. I agree with everything that he said. But one thing that, since we have been talking about shame a lot, shame kind of being like the extreme version of like where guilt eventually manifests, um, I feel like shame really like breeds and multiplies in secrecy, you know? And it's like when I'm trying to keep it a secret that I feel this way or that I have these quote unquote bad feelings or et cetera, then it, it really just kind of like permeates your entire being. And it, and, it, and it leads you to do things that are unspeakable or things that you didn't think that you would do. And it's because you're suffering, you know, it's because you're suffering. So I think something that has really helped me personally, and I think that this is kind of just like, uh, it's kind of like a, like a no-brainer, but at the same time, we, we, and by we, I mean all of us, we tolerate situations sometimes, or we tolerate just being in situations that aren't necessarily conducive to our flourishing in so many different ways. But I guess what I wanted to say is just like, find your people, you know, like find your people, find your people that you feel comfortable with, that you feel like you can speak to very honestly about the challenges that you're going through. Because I really like what Karuna Avatar said. It's like, you're not gonna speak openly about your personal private challenges with the entire organization of ISKCON, you know? Like that's not what we're doing here. So it's like, you really need to find your, your group, your, your niche. <laughs> yeah, that's what we are doing. <laughs> you really need to find your group and your niche of people that you feel that you feel like you can really trust, that you feel like you can really speak openly about these kinds of things. Because I feel like that's when real growth happens. I feel like that's where, you know, real, real progress starts to happen where I can, you know, someone made this beautiful comment of like acceptance. It's like, yeah, that's like the first step. Like I accept that these are things that are going on in my life. And now I have friends and Sangha around me that are supporting me through the process of, of you know, arising from that, you know? 
Because I think that to be kind of, I know Jaya always is using this language about becoming like the hero of your own, own story. It's like, you have to go through the demons. You have to go through the dark night of the soul. And it's like, you need help doing that. You know, you need help. You need a lot of help doing that. So yeah, that would be my message. Just like find your people, make sure they're, make sure you vibe with them, make sure you can be honest with them. And, and you know, to, just to put a cherry on top of that, if you're in a situation where you feel like you're not around your people, and you're like pretending and you're putting on facades to like be the version that like this group that you're around is saying that you're supposed to be, then get out of there, you know, get out of there, go find your people, go for it. Beautiful message. I really don't feel like you guys left anything for me. Um, okay, I'm not envious, but just recapitulating what I thought that I heard, just the basic ideas as food for thought for the community is A, find out what you need, on a psychological level, on a physiological level. I would even go as far as say on an identity level, like finding like you need your identity by which you relate to the world and you feel that you're giving value to the world. So you have to discover that. It's likely you'll discover that in the context of a community of people that care about you. But then that's the other point, find your people. That's like a very critical point. The other one being stop seeking validation from the whole institution. I would even say stop seeking validation from the impersonal standards that are intended for the institution that we kind of tend to impose upon ourselves without taking guidance, without seeking like specific help, like how I can come to that standard, um, how I can gradually move from where I'm at now to being the saint that I want to be or to be the hero. Stop just looking at the standards impersonally but actually find out proper guidance. And so I think that's the part that I want to um, emphasize is the guidance part. You know, Srila Sridhar Maharaj, Prabhupada's godbrother, he says that Shastra is the passive agent of divinity. And the guru, the guide, is the active agent of, divin of divinity. So the passive agent of divinity isn't going to check up on you. <laughs> so it's not going to see if you're applying properly or if you're doing well. And so a lot of us tend, there is an emphasis like this also, which may or may not be healthy, but just read the, just read the book as if it's divorced from actually getting proper guidance. And so you can try that, but it is a passive agent of divinity. So if there is a misapplication, you're going, you're going to go down and you're going to suffer the consequence of that. So you, there's going to be need for the active agent of divinity in your life, the proper guide to help you apply standards at the level which you're at and which you can move. And I, I think what I want to contribute to this point is that as far as the guide, those who will be guiding others are concerned. So there's a lot from that side, but I want to speak from the side of those who are giving guidance or giving friendship or giving counsel or giving you somehow some elder or whatever it is, some respected member of the community. <clears throat> I think it's really important for those who give guidance to have a clarity about the philosophy. I always like to make that point. But particularly in the context of this conversation, seeing the distinction between bhakti and Vedanta and how although someone may fail in terms of a strictly Vedantic consideration, they can still prosper when they're connected to bhakti. Not only they can, but they will in fact prosper the more they're able to embrace that devotion and increase the embrace of that devotion in their life. So when someone's coming to you with this shame, with this guilt, I personally do this for my own self, and I definitely have done it for a lot of guys who've come to, who have confided in me. 
is I downplay the problem that they're talking about. I don't really put that much emphasis on it. I remember walking with a friend one time. We were coming from, I don't know if I should say this because it's going to put me out there, but we were coming from Peaceful Cafe, a vegan cafe, which is another problem, devoted to the outside. That's a whole other podcast. Anyway, we were coming, we we're leaving the, the, the restaurant. And he was asking, like, in, in, in angst almost, like, this is my problem. Like, how, how would you deal with this problem? So I looked at him, like, very seriously, just uh, for dramatic effect. And I said, I would be like, man, this is what I told him. I would be like, man, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> and then I started, like, skipping down the street, you know? Like a high school girl, I just started skipping down the street. And he and I had a very good laugh in the street. We were laughing so hard for like five minutes. And I said, bro, that's literally how I process my own personal conditioning. I realized that the imposition of Maya is strong. And I do have to do a lot more of my bhakti if I want to remove that imposition. But my focus is going to be doing a lot more for my bhakti and not in my failures as a conditioned soul. And so I think as a guy... Of, as a guide or as a friend or that people confide in, that sort of emphasis should really be there. Not only, to, not only by doing that do you make yourself trustworthy as someone who can hold space for the more embarrassing parts of our humanity, which people are always looking for someone who can do that for them, but you also direct them in the proper way toward the embrace of their ideal so that they get more and more encouragement to just hang on to that and gradually in their own way grow towards the ideal that they seek. So I think that would be the other element that I would add to that, these beautiful points that you all brought up. It's yeah. nine and a half hours. Yeah, Dave, you want to say something? I just want to point out, I love how you brought that all together. And it, it just really drives home that this focus on the renunciation and our failings, it's just this trap door back to the same problem of the false ego, wanting oh, to focus on Right, like this is this is a shastric way in which I can still focus on me instead of Krishna. <laughs> sufferings, all my problems, all my failings, all my shortcomings. But the the real juice here is that it's me and not Krishna. <laughs> right. What a what a wonderful way of putting that. Nice. Well, if there are any final comments, I think we'll stop here. Um, this was a fantastic conversation, guys. Like. I personally had such a good time. I'm still, I'm just like, I'm about to burst out into laughter. I'm having such a good time with this conversation. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out for those of you who don't already know that we're, this podcast is called Arise, the Honest Man's Podcast. It's a podcast. It's like a show on the channel that is Bodhika. So Bodhika is a new up and coming community of for creatives to kind of share their testimony or their witness to the power of bhakti in their own personal lives. We're looking for more and more creatives who can do that and add to this burgeoning devotional com online community that we can send people to, to give a sense of how this bhakti can actually impact you on a personal level. The inspiration behind this group is Dave Monova himself, so we're really happy to have you. Yeah, we're going to probably have you on a lot more for obvious reasons. Inspiration is actually you, Prabhu's, because you inspired me that we need a platform like this to showcase the honest and genuine experience of bhakti that so many are having outside of the, you know, kind of institutional stereotyped ideas. So thank you for accepting my invitation, but you're the inspiration. <laughs>
Uh, spoken like a true humble devotee. <laughs> All right, we'll finish here unless there's any any final comments anyone wants to make. Hey guys, I also want to say that we have saved your questions. They are going to be episodes in the future that we would like to get to, but we really wanted to get paint of a, more of a landscape of the inner world of what I think all people are going through, but specifically men go through when dealing with sex and sexuality. We tend to get overlooked except from when we're being toxic. So we want to bring out like there's reasons why we are, we get toxic or we are toxic. And if you can get a sense of that landscape, we might have a better way of attacking the problem at the root and coming up with more substantial solutions. So thank you all very much for participating. Is there any final statements, David? You look like you wanted to say something. I was just going to suggest you put up your Satsanga link in the comments because I got a bunch of messages last time, people wanting to get connected with that. Uh, I'll do that right now. Um, all right. Karuna Avatar, you want to say anything while I'm pulling this up or Kishore Chandra? Any just final statements? Keep them short. <laughs> Well, nah, I, I feel like we've, I feel like we've, uh, we've, yeah, I just knocked over my flask. I'm just like, you know, practically in ecstasy. Um, no, I just, I just want to express that I'm utterly existentially satisfied right now. And uh, I'm very, very grateful to have been able to converse with you Prabhu's in this way and that we're hopefully able to open up necessary conversations that can, um, you know, just help other people we hope to uplift essentially it is called arise so just thank you everyone for tuning in and being with us yes um bishma if you don't mind i can't i can't actually comment in the public thing so i sent the link for the instagram in the private chat maybe you can just add it to the public thing this is this arise podcast is part of the initiative of satsanga sexual sobriety and transmutation sangha it's an accountability brotherhood for helping men show up to the life as the man that they can admire. Um, that is the purpose of the particular group. We have an Instagram right now. We'll probably start a Facebook soon. Um, and the Instagram link is there in the public chat. Now you can click it. DM, DM, DM us if you're male. Um, and we'll get back to you for how you can join the group and participate. Thank you all so much. Wonderful podcast. Thank you very much. Hari Om Tat Sat. See you later, family. See you in the next. Yeah. <laughs>